This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour of the Bible Line. So glad that you can be with us. And if you are a first-time listener, let me tell you what we do. Uh, people call in with questions uh, that they have as they're studying God's Word, maybe as to its meaning or its application, or maybe they're facing a challenge in life and they want biblical counsel. If we can be of help, there's several ways you can contact us. Uh, you can reach us at the 843 South Carolina Exchange, and that 843 number is 525-1859. And by the way, I should say that if during the week you have a question uh, in reference uh, that comes to your mind that you really want to get answered and you don't uh, maybe are not available Tuesdays at 11, you can always call the 843-525-1859 exchange. And one of the options on the menu is to leave a question for the Bible line. If you don't mind your voice being used, uh, you can just tell us if you want your voice to be not use, just say, I'd like this question to remain anonymous, and we won't use your voice. Um, we don't get too many questions that way because we don't really promote it, but we're happy to take them in that fashion as well. Uh, people also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. Anyway, uh, Rick, let's go ahead and get started. We have a ton of questions and Maybe we can knock some of these off today. Well, Pastor, you did mention that we do preserve anonymity, and we do have an anonymous question from a listener who writes, I was saved late last year after watching Would You Like to Have God as Your Friend on the Search the Scriptures app. Since this time, my husband has become concerned about what he perceives to be a sudden change in me. He's concerned that I spend much of my free time listening to sermons, reading my Bible, and mentioning God and Jesus to family and friends. He thinks that isn't polite to discuss religion with others and says he's concerned that I've joined a cult. I've explained to him that I'm in no cult, I've become saved, and I want to share my faith with others so that they can be saved as well. He says that this isn't my job. My husband doesn't believe in God, and he does go to our local church with my children and myself every Sunday. How can I help him to understand that my faith is a good thing and not something to be afraid of? Also, I wanted to ask, what will happen to children below the age of accountability during the rapture? Will they go up to heaven with their saved parents? What about children of unsaved people? Will they have to go through the tribulation? Well, these are great questions. So let me see, Vic, I unpack these. Uh, would you like to know God is your friend? I have an evangelistic booklet that I have written. Uh, it's what I call uh, an Acts 17 presentation of the gospel. Initially, when I became a Christian, we did more of an Acts 2 presentation of the gospel. That today would be like the four spiritual laws or steps to peace with God. There's a certain assumption in those kinds of uh, presentations that people have a certain knowledge of Scripture. 
not any longer today. I meet Marines who come through our church and young couples, and you ask them what they know about Adam and Eve, and sometimes they don't even know who Adam and Eve are. Uh, There's just a total blank, and this is the byproduct of a generation of children who are being left out of church, and it's only grown and deepened. So we do more of an Acts 17 presentation where there's no assumption of any biblical knowledge. And that, I think, is really needed today. But it's helpful for anyone where we start in Genesis and basically we give an overview of the whole Bible. Uh, That booklet is in 11 languages now. But in addition, uh, there is an opportunity to hear it live online. And this is where this anonymous uh, lady listened to it and became a Christian. We're grateful to God for that. Uh, You should respond to your husband by saying, you know, husband, I thank you that you are really grateful that you care about me, that you think maybe I've joined a cult. Uh, But let's think about that for just a second. Uh, The pastor who wrote that booklet, uh, whose website I went to, certainly is not the leader of a cult. Think about the people who've gone through that church. And you may not know this anonymous person, but uh, for instance, Mike Huckabee has been here when he uh, spoke at our Men's Wildlife Supper. Uh, Do you think uh, someone who, um, you know, has the kind of platform that he has would go and not vet a church before he attended? Of course not. Rick Santorum, when he was running for president of the United States, of course, wanted to come in and meet me. And, of course, I took the time to share the gospel with him because he didn't have assurance of salvation, neither he nor his daughter. But believe me, a campaign like that vets a church. You don't want to show up at some church only to find out that the pastor is some cult leader because that will be tear you apart in the in the press. Uh, and certainly Christian leaders like um, Tim Tebow and uh, Jerry Falwell, and I could go on, Anthony, uh, I mean, Tony Evans and um, Alistair Begg and others have all spoken in my pulpit. And again, it's not by accident. I, I was asked to go on a national radio show recently. I'd not heard of it, but when I researched it a little bit, I turned down the invitation just because I thought this guy is too shaky and I don't want my name associated with him because while I might have an hour to do something good, I'm also giving endorsement to him and some of the other people that he has on there. So look, you, you, you've got to be wise in terms of how you deal with people. So it's certainly not the characteristics of a cult, but you could also just remind him that, hey, listen, uh, the Bible says when someone is in Christ, and you might even read the Living Bible, when someone becomes a Christian, this is 2 Corinthians 5, uh, when someone becomes a Christian, he becomes a brand new person inside. His old life has passed away and a new life has begun. More literally, when any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. His old life has passed away. All things have become new. So you can just say, husband, you know, um, this is what the Bible says happens when you become a Christian. We're not all Christians. We're not born Christians. We become a Christian. John 1, 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God. Uh, you, so you're not, um, you're not born a Christian. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become, again, a change of status, the righteousness of God in Christ. And so to get into heaven, you have to become a Christian, and it happens at a point in time in life. And when you do, everything, and I mean absolutely everything, changes. And so then you might just say, in reference to your comment here, 
um, uh, you say, I've become saved and I want to share my faith with others so they can be saved too. He says, this isn't my job. Well, again, you could approach it from two levels. One, husband, you've got to ask and answer, is Jesus Christ God in human flesh? If he is, then everything that came off of his lips is absolute truth. And he said, go preach the gospel to every creature under creation. He said, go therefore and make disciples or converts of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and teaching them of all that I taught you to observe. This is his commission that he gave to all of his people. It's called the Great Commission. So if he's Lord, then this is not my idea. This is his idea. And this is what we see modeled throughout the Acts of the Apostles, just everyday rank-and-file Christians gossiping Jesus. But you might also say, hey, husband, let me ask you this. If you saw someone's house on fire, if you saw our neighbor's house on fire and it got struck by lightning and you can see flames coming out of the roof, but you look through the front window and they have a large picture glass window and you notice that they don't know what's happening that they're just in there laughing and enjoying. But you see a, f- a, a fire up on top of the roof. What are you going to do? Are you going to sit there and say, well, it's not my job to, you know, invade their privacy? No, you're going to go bang on the door and say, get out. Obviously, that's an exaggerated illustration, but it makes my point. Husband, if you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, he said there's a real place called heaven. There's a real place called hell where people are going to spend an eternity. And if I really love someone, if I really care about someone, well, I can't reach everyone. I can reach someone. And I need to find out who those someones are that God gives me opportunity in which to share the good news. So your husband obviously is Christianized. He doesn't know the Lord in a life-changing way. Um, So he may not understand all these things, but you can give an apologetic and try to reason with him. And of course, One of the best things you can do is just to grow in Christ. And sometimes uh, there are some things that just won't be appropriate with him to share. Um, I'm I'm thinking of 1 Peter 3. It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So he's dealing in the context with difficult living situations, maybe a person who you know, as a servant to a a cruel and mean master, maybe a citizen who's under an oppressive government, or in this case, a wife who is married to a man who is lost. Now, you could certainly, by application, uh, use this verse to deal with maybe a Christian brother who's disobedient, but contextually, he's dealing with someone who's lost. He has not placed himself under the authority of God's word. And the point is, is that you're going to win him not so much by what you say, though he has to at some point hear the gospel. So he's not advocating silence as a form of spirituality. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call upon him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless someone goes and and speaks to them, Romans 10. But he is advocating that through your respectful and submissive behavior, Um, that as your life is changed, as you are molded more and more to the image of Christ, that's going to force your husband to ask questions about what is really going on on the inside of your heart. 
And so Peter goes on to exhort these women that your adornment not, must not be merely external, the braiding of the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. He's not advocating that you can't braid your hair, wear jewelry any more than he's saying that you shouldn't wear a dress. But he is advocating that it's very easy to spend all the time on the externals and not to devote the needed time to the heart issues, to the internals, because it's only as you're changed from the inside out. First, you need to be born again. You've made that decision, but you have to grow. And as you grow in Christ, God begins to change your life to reflect more and more like Christ. And God can use this to win your husband without a word, so to speak. Anyway, great question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. Well, there were some other questions regarding the um, the child that uh, mm. is uh, is let's yeah see, at the rapture yeah uh-huh. yeah. So, what happens to a child at the rapture? Well, um, we certainly do know biblically, and by the way, we offer a course at Community Bible Church called the Discovery Class, and we're putting all of those sessions up online. Uh, as basic discipleship, and about 20 of the 45 weeks have been completed. So we still have a ways to go. They're all being updated, every handout. Um, And one of the uh, handouts that we haven't come to deals with the 10 most commonly asked questions about the Christian faith. And one of those questions that we address concerns children. What happens if a little child dies? Sometimes we speak of an age of accountability. It might be better to describe a point of accountability uh, because there's not a specific age that's given in Scripture. Some have assumed 12 or whatever, but there's not a specific age. And no doubt it's different for different children based on their capacity to uh, put together basic concepts and so forth. But there is uh, a truth that's unfolded in Scripture that we cover through a number of passages in God's Word that if a little child dies, they go to heaven. God doesn't send a child to hell for not being able to understand, um, for not believing something they can't understand. So there is at some point that uh, that child crosses the line and they are accountable. So when we relate this to the rapture, if you're pregnant, does you know God allow a miscarriage or premature birth or no, that child is unaccountable. That child goes to heaven. You say, or am I pregnant when I get there? I don't think so. But um, certainly your child would receive immediately a resurrection body. What about little children? I think they'd fall into the same category. Uh, There might be a line somewhere. Let's say for the sake of argument, there's an eight-year-old who doesn't understand the plan of salvation but God's going to give them an opportunity to understand after the rapture. There's seven years that follow the rapture, seven plus years, so that child could be 15. And certainly most would not debate by any stretch that a 15-year-old is accountable fully. And so unless, of course, they have some kind of, you know, mental uh, deformity or malnormity that not does not allow them to understand basic truth. And there are certainly people like that, some with Down syndrome. Certainly some of the most spiritual people I've ever met are folks with Down syndrome, and they fully understand. We, we just had a, a young Down syndrome woman in our church. She's 28 years old, and she just completed a 10-year project where she 
literally copied every single verse in the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 22-21, every single verse. And she's very sharp spiritually. So again, God looks at all those situations. But I would say as a general principle at the rapture, little children would fall under the same category if they had died prematurely that they would go to heaven. That would be, I think, the general principle. Good question. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Renee from Beaufort writes, I'm looking at a Bible curriculum that is using the Pilgrim's Progress story for my younger children. However, the Bible version they use is the ESV. I called to ask about that, and they, they previously had the NIV version, which I don't agree with, but they are now using the ESV. I guess I could supplement, but I just wanted to get your opinion on that version. Well, um, the ESV is certainly a step up from the new NIV. The NIV came out in 84 initially, and so sometimes you'll hear me reference NIV 84, and I do that in deference to the new NIV that had come out some years later in uh, 2011 which uh, dramatically changed some of uh, the passages, trying to make it more gender-sensitive. And in so doing, I think they went overboard. There is certainly a place when, for clarity's sake, we might translate a word in a more specific realm. Like, for instance, there is a word for man in the Bible in reference to uh, a woman, in deference to a woman. So uh, there's a distinction. Uh, Sometimes uh, the word man is just used in a general sense, in a broad sense that can refer to a man or a woman. And it can be helpful. For instance, I have uh, the uh, NASB 95 open in front of me, and it's talking about the Samaritan woman. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. Uh, This is not the Christ, is he? And she asks this question. She's convinced it is, but she's positing it to them. Hey, you know, you decide. But sometimes people make a big deal out of, oh, yeah, she said to the men, and she didn't speak to the women because the women would not have appreciated her because of her, you know, immoral lifestyle. Well, um... The word is actually anthropoi. We get our word anthropology from the Greek word anthropos. And so he's talking about men and women alike. In fact, in the new, and, and, and when I taught this passage years ago, I, I pointed out that that's what was in view. But I just noticed in the new New American Standard, the NASB 2020, uh, they translate it he, that she came and said to the people. And so that was for clarity, and that's helpful uh, because more and more today, you know, again, words change with time, and so asking, you know, what word today would best communicate the original. Well, the NIV, in its newest form, went way overboard, took singular pronouns, he, because we don't want to be offensive with a singular pronoun, in some cases changed it to they, which actually changed the meaning of the text and its personal nature and its application and so on. Um, So when that happened, a lot of evangelicals were looking for a newer translation, and a lot of them went to the ESV. Now, 
they were using the NIV mainly because they weren't expository preachers. And so the NIV was a very popular translation. And some pastors don't preach expositionally. But when they do, and they're concerned with detail, each and every word, most of them used uh, the New American Standard. And you can just think of the many people that you would listen to on this broadcast station, whether it's uh, Erwin Lutzer or um, you know, uh, David Jeremiah or whoever, you know, most of these guys, John MacArthur, they're using the new American standard. Why? Cause it's kind of the gold standard of, of translations where you're trying to do, uh, a formal e- equivalent, uh, a word for word as best you are able. So a lot of them, after they left the NIV, went to the ESV. And the ESV was actually, they took the old RSV, which was really criticized when it came out. You know, 99% of it would be in total agreement with every English translation. So I never really want to, you know, create in people's minds, like you you can't trust a translation of the Bible. Um, But still, uh, the original RSV had some problems. They substituted the word expiation for propitiation without going into all the detail. There was huge ramifications on that and things that drove the translator teams to make that decision. Then they came out with the new RSV, but the old RSV was available for sale. And the people who wanted to create a new translation called the English Standard Version bought that which some people criticized because it was owned by the National Council of Churches, which was a very liberal organization that basically stood for modern-day apostasy. So why give $600,000 to buy the rights to it? And some would argue, well, because we rescued a bad translation, we're going to make it better. With that said, the ESV is a very good translation. There are some areas in it that I don't, care for the way they handled it. Like, for instance, and by the way, I have a course on bibliology. In section six of bibliology, I go through the history of the English Bible and then evaluate at least some of the major English translations that are available. And I did that course, I think, in 2010. So, you know, I haven't gone into, you know, NASB 2020 because obviously it wasn't out when I did that. Uh, again, with that said, um, I go through the various English translations. Now, there's over 100 English translations. So we, we suffer from a unique uh, problem, so to speak, that other cultures don't have. Some cultures only have one translation in their tongue, and it might be 100 years old. But still, having a modern literal translation can be useful. But like in the English Standard Version, when you come to John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery. Uh, unfortunately, they put a big footnote in it. And they say, well, there's a lot of doubt whether this was part of the original Gospel of John because it's excluded from certain manuscripts. Um, there's nothing unworthy of it. It seems best that it was something that could have happened during Jesus's ministry, but they argue is not originally part of John's gospel, and therefore it should not be considered as a part of Scripture. Now, I would, I would take issue with that. In fact, when I preached through the gospel of John, and I went through John 8, I gave, you know, I think nine or ten reasons why it should be included in good reasons and sound reasons. Now, in the New American Standard, it's in brackets. And why do they put it in brackets? 
because there are some old manuscripts that don't contain it. Uh, it's just not found there. And so out of a point of integrity, they include it in brackets, but they put it in the body of the text because they believe it deserves to be there, that it's part of the original. Now, there are some times in the NASB where you come to the end of Mark's gospel and there's a few verses that are somewhat bizarre and they don't believe it's part of the original. And so they have it as a marginal note. Um, but again, you know, the flow of the gospel, Christ is in Jerusalem. He's at the temple where this event takes place. And so chapter eight grows out of that event in the temple. It's an illustration of what he had just taught about judging with righteous judgment. So it certainly fits. Uh, it, it follows the pattern that John, um, uses all the way through his gospel. There might be an event, and then there's a sermon that follows it, and so there's this event, and then there's this sermon that follows it, the light of the world discourse. Um, you know, not to mention the early church viewed it as part of the canon of Scripture. So you got people like Jerome and Ambrose who cite it. So I go to all those reasons, but I, I don't want to right now. But I say that to say I think the ESV is a very good translation. In a few places, they do, like the NIV, for instance, if you're reading in Acts chapter 8 uh, and you're in the NIV or in the ESV, they leave a verse out entirely uh, that is bracketed in the NASB, again, because they believe it's part of the original, though it's not found in some ancient manuscripts. And, of course, I think it was Augustine who said with the John uh, 8 issue that there was some husband who felt like a woman might use this as a basis to commit adultery and be forgiven, and so he decided to leave it out. And then anyone who copied his manuscript and his manuscript and his manuscript created a family of manuscripts where it was not there. But in Acts chapter 8, you're dealing with the Ethiopian eunuch in the ESV, uh, it, you, you read Acts eight thirty six. The next verse that follows in the text is Acts eight thirty eight, and so it goes from verse thirty six to thirty eight, and they number it accordingly. You say, what happened to verse thirty seven? Well, uh, they put it down at the bottom of the page. Well, I think it's part of the original text, so they make some decisions like that. But again, I I personally think that the gold standard of um, biblical translation is the New American Standard, and they've done just a fantastic, fantastic job uh, that I wouldn't stop using this curriculum because they use the ESV because it's not like they're a bunch of liberal apostates. They're not. Uh, These are men that love Christ that were involved in the translation process. I would differ with them on it, as would the teams that were involved in the New American Standard would differ with them for some of the translation decisions they made. It's not either quite as literal as the NASB, so um, though it would certainly follow not a thought-for-thought translation, which the NIV would follow more, but more of a word-for-word translation like the NAS, but not to the same degree of preciseness. So anyway, I hope that helps. Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, you can also email us at tbl at wagp.net. Amy from Lafayette, Indiana, has two questions. She says, first, 
Have you heard of the teaching, Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused? It is a collaboration by Darby Strickland, Leslie Vernick, Chris Moles, Brad Hambrick, and others. Our church has some cases of emotional abuse happening between a husband and wife, and they are hesitant to jump on board with the teaching of this ministry. Do you have any advice on this? Secondly, I desire to be discerning in who and what I listen to as far as biblical preaching and teaching. There have been some pastors you have mentioned, such as John Piper, that are turning toward worldliness in support of some ideas coming from the LGBTQ platform. How do you keep current on those that remain legitimate, standing firm on God's word from those who are being corrupt in their theology, and how can I determine who I should continue to listen to? Well, let me just first say, I've never, ever, ever said that John Piper uh, was embracing the LGBTQ platform. Never. But I have said that I differ with John Piper on his view of Israel. So John Piper is a millennial in his theology. Uh, He doesn't believe there's any future for Israel. Um, So in his theology and in his teaching, Uganda is no different from Israel. Great place to visit, to see, you know, some of the visuals that you read in the scripture. But he sees zero significance to Israel being born again as a nation and God gathering some nearly 8 million Jews from 100 countries across the planet back into the land. He's dead wrong on that. And again, I would differ with him on that. That doesn't mean he's not my brother in Christ, but I think he's he's wrong on that. Um, Lay that aside uh, in reference to... um, you know, there, so, the, so there are people you need to be discerning on because there is a worldview maybe that they learned or studied under. Like Alistair Begg. We, I love Alistair Begg. He's spoken at our church before on two different occasions. Uh, so obviously I don't view him as a heretic or that he's a lightweight or weak or anything like that. But do I agree with him on his eschatology? No. He's a millennial. But I think he grew up in the Church of Scotland where that was kind of hammered into his head, and that influenced a lot of the ways that he thinks. And sometimes uh, the people that train you and disciple you can have an impact on you your whole life. And so you need to think for yourself, and you need to work those things through. And so, you know, in his mind, there's just like Piper's mind, there's just the next big event is, you know, Jesus is coming back, and we're all going to go to heaven, and that's the, and that's it. Well, that's not it. And there's a whole lot more to what is going to unfold in the future. But that's not to say he's not a great Bible teacher. He is. I would say he's a teacher exhorter. And, um, you know, he's very heavy in, in, in exhorting people. Uh, and so maybe some of the details of eschatology he doesn't dive into. Uh, so, you know, when I heard his uh, one message when I was driving in one day on Daniel, I thought, oh, man, you missed an opportunity. But that's okay. I love him. And he didn't miss the application in terms of all Scripture being inspired by God. Now, in reference to your other question, so so I just want to be clear there on John Piper. I've never said that of John Piper. Now, I've said it of some other people who are soft on the LGBTQ, uh, like Tim Keller, who supposedly is a Christian apologist. And he's arguing that, um, you know, we should uh, have a sensitivity to gay people. Well, I think we should. But he also argues that with Sam Alberry, 
that a person can retain same-sex attraction as long as they don't act on it physically and be in good stead. And so he was supportive of the Revoice Conference. And again, Sam Alberry goes even further than him. At least I maybe maybe TK is in the same camp, and I just haven't read it yet. But Sam Alberry goes to the point where you can physically hug, and as long as there's not a a full-blown relationship, I think you know what I'm referring to, but we have children who listen, uh, then everything is fine. Th- this, is, this is wicked. And, and so when the Presbyterian Church of America is doing a study on this, there's nothing to study. And so it was a PCA church that, of course, hosted the Revoice Conference. There's nothing to study, nothing at all. This is no different than heterosexual lust in a man's heart. It is to be brought under the sanctifying process of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, in reference to your other question, go ahead. Well, is there a way that she can kind of keep up on the various preachers that may begin drifting towards that? uh... Well, you know, there's um, the best thing to do, of course, for yourself is to study in being God's Word. How do you teach... uh, the secret service to deal with counterfeit money. We think of the secret service just in terms of protecting the president. And that's one aspect of what they do. But a major aspect of what they do is to deal with counterfeit money. In fact, that was the whole reason they were started and their job description expanded to care for the presidents of the United States. But how did they teach them? Well, they learned the real thing so well. It's feel, it's touch, it's light enhancement, everything about real money, that you can immediately spot a fake when you touched it. And that's really the key is that you are grounded in sound doctrine. And this is why some 45 times in the New Testament, the need to teach and preach sound doctrine is mentioned. And this is what we've jettisoned in the church today, sound doctrine. And people don't really know the difference between what the Bible actually says And because they're not being taught it by the shepherds, and this is what shepherds are supposed to do. But you say, it's too heavy. We don't want to turn off, you know, lost people. And look, God is sovereign. He's big. And if a person's heart is open to truth, it doesn't matter what you're preaching on. If you're preaching the text of Scripture, even hard things, God will work in the hearts of those people to bring them to himself. So the biggest, most important thing you can do is to be grounded in sound doctrine. There are certainly, there's a website, I'm a little bit sometimes hesitant to endorse it because sometimes these guys, they're young and I think they go overboard occasionally, but it's called Reformation Charlotte. And uh, they um, are always dealing with false teaching. That's their major thing. Okay, so I think sometimes they go overboard. How'd they go overboard? Well, for instance, they, uh, they posited Billy Graham on one occasion, as a false, as well, they said he was a false teacher. He's not a false teacher. But it is true that he was, on one occasion, being interviewed uh, by a guy at the Crystal Cathedral who's now dead, and I hope he went to heaven. He had some really weird doctrine. Um, but uh, lay that aside, he made some statements about the grace of God being broad, and he made a very similar statement on Larry King, and I think he deeply regretted that. 
And after he regretted it, he came back and said, you know, Christ is the only way to God. I want to make it very clear that this is what I believe. So he, he made in the course of a year a couple of interviews, and I don't know what drove it, but he corrected it. And so for them to put him up there and these two instances that don't really reflect 40 years before and 30 years after of his ministry, I think is unfair. Certainly uh, Todd Friel, um, we've talked about maybe putting him on this station. He has a thing called Wretched, and he deals with a lot of, of false teachers who you know, come down the pike and just aberrant theology and does a good job. He's closely associated with John MacArthur's church um, and with Phil Johnson. Phil is often on his uh, podcast, but that would be a good one to get as well. And at least it would give you some of the broad strokes, and then you can do your own research and you can read for yourself to see, hey, is this, is this an accurate reflection? But again, you have to know Scripture well, and that's why it's important that you're in a sound church that teaches the Word of God. Now, in reference to your question, have you heard the teaching becoming a church that cares well for the abused? So that is actually put out by Lifeway Books. And if you type in that phrase, uh, becoming a church that cares well for the abused, Lifeway's website will come up and there'll be a short video by J.D. Greer. Now, I've lost a lot of faith in Lifeway books. There was a time when you could trust Lifeway. It was called Baptist Bookstores. And, of course, they changed the name to Lifeway Books, and that was not a bad move on their part. They realized that if we made our name a little more generic, when people uh, saw a store that said Baptist Bookstore and they reasoned in their mind, well, I'm a Methodist or I'm a Catholic, I can't go in there, uh, they wouldn't go in. But if it said Lifeway Books, so I wonder what that's about. And they would get more street traffic and, as a result, maybe win some people to Christ who wouldn't otherwise, you know, walk into their store or reach some people from different denominations that actually shared uh, belief on some things. Well, Lifeway Books has drifted. And they drifted under, I think, in my opinion, under the guise of making money. So, like, when a Jen Hatmaker... Uh, when her books were being sold, I, you know, I would not allow, you know, if we have a woman's Bible study, part of my job as a shepherd, as an under shepherd under Christ is to protect the flock. And so if someone wants to do a book in an ABF or an adult Bible fellowship or a woman's, it has to be approved through the elder board. Why? Because we don't want people to be buffaloed. And so when Jen Hatmaker's, you know, books were posited, I said, no, she's not sound for this one woman's Bible study. And as it turns out, I was right. And now she had even Lifeway Books ended up dropping her uh, because she voiced approval for gay marriage. Um, So Lifeway, you know, why didn't they drop Beth Moore 20 years ago when she started going over the edge And, you know, having these text messages from God and direct revelations and Beth, you know, and and she puts, you know, um, God's voice in her mind and she begins to quote God directly. I mean, talk about dangerous. But you see, Lifeway uh, had this woman who was a cash cow that made them millions and millions of dollars. And in my view, 
by having Beth Moore under the Baptist press. She used the church. She used evangelicals, evangelicals who lacked discernment, who didn't know who's on first. Why? Because they're undertaught and they like Beth Moore because of the emotionalism and the feeling they get. Well, that's the way false teachers, you know, work. And sadly, I don't know if it's done yet, but she's working on a study with her daughter, not that divorced people who's divorced, but who's also friendly towards the LGBTQ lifestyle. Why is she doing a book with her? Why? Why is she going to do a new book like that? that? That's wrong. Not to mention she violates gender roles, creates a model for um, women that is contrary to what God says about the roles of men and women in the church. So they do a tremendous disservice to the distinctions that God makes while he affirms our equality. He gives us different roles, not to mention when you do that, it's very destructive to the home. And so you want your kids to turn out passionate for Christ and consider the byproduct. You know, so all I'm saying is you, you want your kids to be passionate for Christ and for that to happen, what Beth Moore should have been doing under the guise of women's ministry was not traveling the country where she wasn't involved day to day to day to day to day because she wasn't there with her children. Um, not to mention she was creating a model where people left her conference and saying, I want to be a Beth Moore rather than I want to be at home with my children because this is a job that God sanctions and esteems and waves the flag of his glory over that this is important. But Lifeway wouldn't drop her, and then she finally, you know, through COVID and other things, she drops the Southern Baptist Convention. So I don't respect Lifeway books anymore. I I just think they lack good, sound leadership. Not to mention, if you do a little reading on it, it says, we believe every church must be equipped to respond well in the initial stages of learning about instances of sexual, physical, or emotional abuse. I don't have a problem with that. That's the world we live in. You have people who come in the door um, almost weekly, certainly monthly, who have been abused physically and otherwise. Um, That's why we created Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abuse, the training curriculum of a handbook on um, on introductory video and 12 lesson videos brings together top experts from various fields to help leaders understand and implement the best practices for handling the variety of abuse scenarios of church, school, or ministry. All right, look, I'm not opposed to, like, church putting in protections to make sure both the worker and the child is protected. We should do that. We've got opportunities in this day. We have how many cameras we have in our church, Rick? Oh gosh, oh, about 120. No, it's 190 something, according to Is Jason. Okay. Yeah. So he about, took over that ministry. But, but, but <laughs> I wasn't sure of the exact number. But lay that aside. You know, every inch of this property is filmed and protected so that there is, you know, protection for the worker and for the children. So there are certainly in the day that we live in. Look, we live in a day where pornography is so widespread. What's the end line of pornography? Child abuse. It's playing off of children. I mean, it's a wicked thing, but that's where it goes. And the more 
pornographic the culture becomes, the more child abuse is going to grow and deepen and broaden. So certainly there should be protections, but I don't need all these experts because fundamental to a course like this is to deny the sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Scripture sufficient? to deal with emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and otherwise, yes, I don't need 100 experts to come into my church. Now, certainly, again, I want, if someone's a lawyer, you know, and he can give me some legal advice to protect the church from some of the attacks that Satan might bring on, great. You know, but I don't, it's like you go to a pediatrician. You want what he can offer you in terms of, medical care that he can provide. But you don't want necessarily, unless he's a born-again Christian and his mind's renewed from Scripture, to get his advice on child training, which some pediatricians make as part of their curriculum uh, in their well-care baby programs. You want what he does professionally and what he can offer you, but you don't want a lot of exterior advice. So, look, I, I don't respect J.D. Greer, obviously, you know, the former Southern Baptist president. Why? Because of his compromise, he came out, and of course, it came out this week or maybe five or six days ago that the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, mimicked one of his sermons. Somebody would say he plagiarized it. Um, he would say otherwise, but lay all that aside. There, what, what, what was important was not the identical nature of the sermon, but what both of them taught in those sermons, that God whispers about homosexuality. God doesn't whisper about homosexuality. God shouts. Now, it's true. God doesn't destroy every sodomite city, or, you know, we, we wouldn't have San Francisco today. But God sometimes does something once to send a message for all time. In fact, the book of Jude looks back on the events when God, you know, destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of uh, how he feels about this sin and about the coming judgment. So uh, I say that to, 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 to say that God just whispers about this, look, that, that's wanting to like to be liked. And then to say that we need to use, you know, gender-sensitive pronouns. So if a guy becomes a girl and she wants to be called she, if, um, if um you know, Paul now wants to be called Patty, that we should accommodate them. That's wrong, J.D. Greer. That's evil. That is gross compromise. That's buying into the world's thinking. And so, you know, for him to endorse this curriculum right off, I'd say, I don't trust it. Not to mention, I wouldn't want anyone to watch some video series in my church that J.D. Greer endorses because then I am giving endorsement to J.D. Greer. And to me, he's weak and compromised in his model of teaching and what should be happening. Anyway, I hope that helps. Let's go to the next question. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And Sharon from Springfield, Georgia writes, why do you think in the King James Bible, Luke 2.9 says the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds announcing the birth of our Savior and Lord? The new King James and others say an angel of the Lord. Was this found to not represent the angel of Yahweh and later corrected? I know the angel of the Lord is Jesus pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. This scripture is the argument someone has raised against this. 
I think there is too much proof throughout God's word that prove the identity of this referenced angel as Jesus. Then she writes a couple of days later, if you haven't already answered my question from a day or two ago, I have another scripture passage referencing an angel of the Lord being our Lord in the New Testament in Luke 10. I know this is just a vision of, I think she may mean Acts 10. I know this is just a vision of Cornelius, but can you comment on this passage as well? Only King James uses Lord and not lowercase Lord, I believe. All right, so it's it's a good question. Uh, and I have a series on angelology, and in one of the messages I deal with, and by the way, maybe someone's new, and we offer what I call the Institute of Biblical Studies, and so I teach seminary master-level type courses. It's taught on a master's level. So if you went to a top seminary, this is the kind of uh, instruction you would be getting. And so one of the lessons deals with the angel of the Lord. And certainly as we walk through the angel of the Lord passages in the Old Testament, it's obvious that the angel of Yahweh, or the older way of rendering it, the angel of Jehovah, um, was no ordinary angel that it was God himself. And so the angel of the Lord is referred to as, you know, God in the next verses in a number of places, uh, because this was God coming and appearing as an angel. Then the question became, well, which member of the Godhead was it the father, the son or the spirit? And we walked through that whole thing and we demonstrate that this was God, the son, and that after Bethlehem, you never see a mention of the angel of the Lord again, ever. Now, your question, it's a good one, is in um, Luke 2, 9. And so the King James, do you have uh, the King James there, Rick? Read, if you would, uh, Acts, I mean, Luke chapter 2 and verse 9, and I'll read it from the New American Standard. Let me read it first from the NASB, and then we'll see how it reads in the King James, and then I'll get you to look up the same verse, Rick, in the New King James. So in Luke chapter 2, in verse 9, it says, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. So this was the encounter that the shepherds had. Go ahead. How does it read in the uh, authorized version or the King James version? All right. In the King James, the old King James, uh, it says, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. So it says, and lo, the angel of the Lord. And then in the New King James, and by the way, the article is not present in any Greek manuscript of any kind. And so the New King James reads what? And behold, an angel of the Lord. Okay, an angel of the Lord. So it went from the angel of the Lord to an angel of the Lord. So they clarified it. Now, part of that is the way Brits think. And so remember, we call it the authorized version. Uh, That was authorized by the King of England, King James. So it's not like God authorized the version, as some people try to put it. But it's certainly a magnificent translation of Holy Scripture. But nonetheless, the Brits think a little bit differently from we do in the use of articles. And so this was reflective of English translators. Uh, I say, uh, Rick, I need to go to hospital if I'm British. Uh, If I'm American, I might say, I need to go to the hospital. So, you know, whenever I listen to the BBC News, which is not often, and 
kind of drives me eerie when they talk about hospital without putting the article. I said, fix it. And they would say to me, no, speak the King's English, you Americans. And sometimes they add the article to make it more grammatically smooth um, when there is no article in the Greek New Testament. And so one of the things that the New King James did was they updated uh in, in refined some of the translation issues that the King... And look, in, in when you think about the King James version of the Bible, people say, I believe in the 1611. Um, well, the 1611A or B? Because the first translation of the King James that came out in 1611, they printed it, and as soon as they were done printing it, they continued to work and refined it, and six months later came out the 1611B with some changes in it. And if you read the preface, I have a 400th edition, anniversary edition of the King James Bible uh, that came out in 2011, and they put the original preface in it. And in the preface, it says something to the effect that, hey, look, um, some of the decisions that we made concerning Greek and Hebrew we're limited in our knowledge. We have no doubt that in future translations, uh, the words will be refined and more precise. And you've got to remember that, for the most part, most Christians were not involved in Bible translation. I mean, you can go back, certainly, to some of the predecessors, the Wycliffe Bible, the Tyndale Bible, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, and all these different. But, but for the most part, Bible translation was not a major emphasis in the church, and a lot of people just read the Latin Vulgate, and they were happy with that because they knew Latin. But it kept the Bible out of the hands of the masses. So you had guys like Wycliffe who said, no, we need to put the Bible into the hands of the people because they can think for themselves. And so even the King James, they recognize. And so you've got, you know, when we say the old King James, I read the old King James today, you're actually reading the 1738 translation. It's the fifth revision of the King James Bible from 1611. And there's approximately 75,000 changes between the 1611 and the 1738. So they're not even reading the 1611. They're reading the 1738 translation. Uh, that has thousands and thousands of changes. Why? Because God's word changes. No, God's word never changes. It is fixed and firm. What changes is the receptor language that you are translating into. And so if I ask you what lasciviousness means, a lot of people listening to me, their mind would go blank. I've got to look that one up in the dictionary, Pastor. Well, we don't use the word much today. We'd say sensuality. And so a good translation asks, what word today best represents that original Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic word? So it's an angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord never appears again after Bethlehem because Jesus was the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today here on The Bible Line.